Lesson 3, July 14 to 20, ready for teaching on July 21, Life in the Early Church. Sabbath afternoon, July 14. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've come to open your word again and we're learning about how the Holy Spirit worked in the disciples who became the apostles and how the church just exploded and how that so many people came to give their lives to you. We pray that as we open your word this week that the Holy Spirit will be there to guide us and that your word may talk to us and show us what individually we need in our lives. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. The early church's sense of urgency could not have been stronger. The way that Jesus had answered the question concerning the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom, leaving the issue of time open, could be understood to mean that everything depended on the coming of the Spirit and the completion of the apostolic mission. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 8 reads, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, when Pentecost came, early believers thought that everything was fulfilled. They had received the Spirit and shared the gospel with the whole world. Not that the apostles had left Jerusalem and had gone out to the world, but the world had come to them, as we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galilean? And how is it that we hear each in his own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What happened next was the church's detachment from material goods, sensing that the time was short, and they sold all they had and devoted themselves to learning and to fellowship while continuing to witness about Jesus, but only in Jerusalem. The communal life they developed, though effective in helping the poor, soon became a problem, and God had to intervene to keep the church united. This was also the time when they began to find themselves facing opposition, yet amid it all their faith remained unshakable. 
And I guess it's about time now to say greetings to those in Germany who are vision impaired, who are now receiving this service of the Sabbath School lesson in audio form. It's great to be with you. Sunday, July 15, Teaching and Fellowship After Pentecost, Luke shifts the narrative to a general description of the inner life of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 2.42 he says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. The four items noted appear to be basically teaching and fellowship. According to verse 46, the teaching was carried out in the temple, while the fellowship was in private homes. The temple court was surrounded by roofed porches that were frequently used for rabbinic instruction. That the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching shows that the gift of the Spirit did not lead them to a contemplative religion, but to an intense learning process under the apostles, whose authoritative teaching was authenticated by wonders and signs, as we read in verse 43 of chapter 2. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Spiritual fellowship was another distinctive mark of the early Christian piety. The believers were constantly together, not only in the temple but also in their homes, where they shared meals, celebrated the Lord's Supper, and prayed, as we read in verses 42 and 46. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. By having such daily celebrations, the early Christians expressed their hope in Jesus' soon return, when his fellowship with them would be restored in the messianic kingdom, predicted in Matthew 26.29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Private homes played a key role in the early church's life. The believers still attended the temple's daily ceremonies, as we read in Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And on Sabbaths, they presumably were in the synagogues with their fellow Jews, as we read in James 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes... But the distinctive elements of Christian devotion were performed in homes. Question. Read Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 and chapter 4 verses 34 and 35. What was an important aspect of early Christian fellowship? Acts two forty-four and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And Acts chapter 4 verses 34 to 35. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked 
For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as any one had need. Believing that the end was near, they decided that their material possessions, private property to use a more up-to-date term, was not that important anymore. A common use of their material resources, therefore, seemed appropriate. There was no reason to worry about tomorrow, as the Messiah himself would provide for their needs in the Messianic kingdom, as we read in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine to 30 And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This sharing allowed them to experience a deeper sense of unity, besides becoming an extraordinary example of Christian generosity. So to finish today, how generous are you with what you have been given from the Lord? July 16. The Healing of a Lame Man In Acts chapter 3 verse 1, which we read yesterday, Peter and John went to the temple for the three o'clock prayer service. This indicates the essential Jewish character of the church's faith at this early period. That is, the apostles did not go to the temple only to instruct or make new converts, but because Peter and John were still Jews, and as such, were still committed to Jewish religious traditions. At least up to this point. Let's look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, How many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. 
There they performed an astounding miracle that we read in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through to 10. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this gave Peter an opportunity to preach another sermon. Question. Read Acts chapter 3 verses 12 to 26. What are some of Peter's main emphases in his sermon? beginning at verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. So, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that the Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Five main points characterized early Christian preaching. Jesus was the suffering Messiah. 
as we've just read. God resurrected him, as we've just read. Jesus was exalted in heaven, as it says in verse 13. He will come again, verse 20 said. And repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 3.19. In many ways, this is the same message we are taking to the world, even if the context has changed. The apostles were still in a Jewish setting, when instead of changing religions, the people basically just had to migrate from the old covenant to the new one. As part of God's people, they had to accept the Messiah and experience the new birth that follows a true acceptance of Jesus. Now, though the situation is different, the message is still essentially the same. Christ died for our sins, was resurrected, and he will return. This means, then that we can find salvation in him. Even in the context of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ risen, and Jesus Christ returning must be the centre of how we proclaim those messages. From the book Gospel Workers, page 156 and 157, we read, Of all professing Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be foremost in uplifting Christ before the world. The proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. This truth, with others included in the message, is to be proclaimed, but the great centre of attraction, Christ Jesus, must not be left out. It is at the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary. With the simple faith of a little child, he must trust in the merits of the Saviour, accepting his righteousness, believing in his mercy. Tuesday, July 17, The Rise of Opposition It was not long until the church's success aroused opposition from some Jerusalem leaders. The Jerusalem temple was run by the high priest and his associates, most of whom were Sadducees. The high priest was also the president of the Sanhedrin Council, which in those days was composed mostly of Sadducees and Pharisees. Because the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, they were greatly disturbed that Peter and John were teaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Arrested by the temple guards, the apostles were put in custody until the following day, when they were brought before the council. Question. Read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through to 18. When asked by what authority they had been acting, how did Peter reply? What was the underlying message in what Peter said that the leaders would have found so threatening? Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. 
And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marvelled, and they realised that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But, When they had commanded them to go outside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in his name. So they called them, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. The challenge about authority posed by the Jewish leaders suggests a concern for power. Peter, however, declared not only that the miracle had been performed in the name of Jesus, but also that salvation comes from him only. The apostles were before the highest Jewish body, yet they were in the service of a much higher authority. These men were simple, unschooled Galilean fishermen. Thus their courage and eloquence struck those who were there. Although the leaders did not realise it, the point was that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, exactly as Jesus had foretold in Matthew ten sixteen to 20 Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, For it will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And so, to finish today, think about the desire for power and how potentially dangerous it can be, at any level and in any context. As Christians called to be servants, why must we be careful about the lure of power?
Wednesday, July 18. Ananias and Sapphira. The pooling of goods in the early church was not compulsory. That is, it was not a formal condition of membership. Yet, there certainly were several examples of voluntary generosity that inspired the whole community. One such example was Barnabas, who will play an important role later in the book. We read about that in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the Apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the Apostles' feet. However, there were also negative examples that threatened the unity of the church from within right at a time when attacks from without had just begun. Question. Read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through to 11. What are the lessons of this story? Acts 5, beginning at verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Though Luke has not given us all the details, there is no question that the fundamental problem of Ananias and Sapphira was not the attempt to keep the money, but the practice of deceit within the community. Their sin was not the result of an impulsive act, but of a carefully laid plan, a deliberate attempt to test the Spirit of the Lord, as it says in verse 9. They were not under the obligation to sell their property and give to the church. Thus, when they committed themselves to doing so, perhaps they were acting in their own interest only, maybe even trying to gain influence among the brethren with what appeared to be a commendable act of charity. This possibility may help to explain why God punished them so severely. Even if the church's communal life resulted from the conviction that Jesus was just about to come, an act like that of Ananias and Sapphira at such an early stage could disparage the importance of loyalty to God and become a bad influence among the believers. The fact that there is no mention of Ananias as being given the chance to repent, as in the case of Sapphira in verse 8, may be due only to the shortness of the account. The bottom line is that, from the beginning to the end, they had acted sinfully, 
And sin is a serious matter in God's eyes, even if he does not always punish it immediately, as we read in Ezekiel 18.20 and Romans 6.23. Ezekiel 18.20 reads, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, that punishment is often deferred should constantly remind us of how gracious God is, as we read in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thursday, July 19, The Second Arrest If the apostles could be used to bring God's judgment on sin, as in Ananias and Sapphira's case, they could also be used to bring God's grace on sinners. Their powerful healing ministry, revealed in Acts 5.12-16, which we read yesterday, was tangible evidence that God's Spirit was working through them. That even Peter's shadow, it was believed, could heal people is striking. The closest parallel in the Gospels is that of a woman who was healed by touching Jesus' garment, as we read in Acts chapter 8, verses 43 and 44. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for twelve years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Luke, however, does not say that Peter's shadow actually had healing power, but that the people thought so. Yet, even if popular superstition was involved, God would still dispense his grace. Notwithstanding, the more the apostles were filled with the Spirit, and signs and wonders multiplied, the more the religious leaders were filled with jealousy. This led them to arrest the apostles a second time, as we read in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. It was only after their miraculous escape, in Acts 5.19-24, and another bold speech by Peter, stressing that they should obey God rather than men, that some of the authorities began to consider the possibility that supernatural influences could be at work. Acts 5, verses 19-24 But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. 
But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the table, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. And verse 29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Question. Read Acts chapter 5, verses 34 to 39. How did Gamaliel try to dissuade the Sanhedrin from killing the apostles? Acts 5, beginning at verse 34. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. The Sanhedrin was controlled by the Sadducees, with the Pharisees forming an influential minority. Gamaliel was a Pharisee and a doctor of the law. He was so highly regarded among the Jews that he became known as Rabban, our teacher, rather than simply Rabbi, my teacher. Paul was one of his disciples, as we read in Acts 22, verse 3. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are Today, Gamaliel recalled two other rebel movements in Israel's history that had also attracted followers and caused turmoil. The leaders, however, were killed and their followers were completely dispersed. The lesson he drew was that if the Christian movement was of human origin, it would soon disappear. On the other hand, if it was a divine movement as claimed by the apostles, how could they hope to withstand it? Gamaliel's advice prevailed. The apostles were flogged and once again commanded not to speak in Jesus' name. So to finish today, what does this story tell us about how needful and helpful good counsel can often be? How can we learn to be more open to getting counsel even when it may consist of what we don't necessarily want to hear? Friday, July 20. From Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 37, we read, We are stewards, entrusted by our absent Lord with the care of His household and His interest, which He came to this world to serve. 
He has returned to heaven, leaving us in charge, and He expects us to watch and wait for His appearing. Let us be faithful to our trust, lest coming suddenly He find us sleeping. End of quote. And from Ellen White comments in the Seventh Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1057. The people need to be impressed with the sacredness of their vows and pledges to the cause of God. Such pledges are not generally held to be as obligatory as a promissory note from man to man. But is a promise less sacred and binding because it is made to God? Because it lacks some technical terms and cannot be enforced by law, will the Christian disregard the obligation to which he has given his word? No legal note or bond is more obligatory than a pledge made to the cause of God. And that brings us to some discussion questions. There are five. Number one, among many other things, Jesus left two immediate legacies to the disciples the expectation of his soon return, and a worldwide mission. How should these two factors impact our sense of mission and the call to preach the gospel to the world? 2. Someone once said, We should be ready as if Jesus would come today, but continue working in the mission of the church as if he would take another hundred years to come. What wisdom is found in this sentiment, and how can we apply it to our calling in life? 3. Why must the life, death, resurrection and return of Jesus be central to all that we preach? Or look at it like this. What good is anything we preach without these events? 4. What should the story of Ananias and Sapphira teach about just how difficult it is for us to know the hearts of others, either for good or for evil? And 5. Who are some modern-day Gamaliels whom you know? Or, perhaps, are you in a position to play that role for others? Either way, in class, share examples about how the giving or the receiving of wise counsel did some good. What lessons can we learn from these accounts? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Too Scared to Adopt, and it's by Sang Suk Park. Since I was a little girl, I wanted to adopt a child. The desire remained strong after I got married and raised a son, but I feared I wasn't qualified. Finally, I filled out the paperwork. Send me a child whom I can handle, I prayed. Give me this sign that the adopted child is from you. Make the first child I meet the one whom you want me to adopt. This was my prayer for two and a half months. Then the orphanage sent a two-year-old girl, Bumen. But when she arrived, she just glared at me. I wanted to win her heart, so I gave her food and a doll, but she flung down the doll and she wouldn't allow me to touch her. I sent Bumen back to the orphanage. I'm too scared to adopt, I told my husband. But I sensed God saying, What happened to all your prayers? And request for a sign that the first child would be chosen by me. I wept and told God, I'm too scared to live with this child. But then I changed my prayer. 
If I'm supposed to take this child, give me confidence and the assurance that you will raise her, I prayed. If I'm not supposed to adopt her, remove this heavy burden that I have to adopt a child. I prayed this for five days. On the fifth day, I read Second Samuel 24.14 during my devotions and realized that this was the answer. In this verse, King David says, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. I remembered that God always had led me, and I knew he would continue to care for my family with great mercy. I decided to fall into the hand of the Lord. Let's go get the child, I told my husband. Tears streamed down my cheeks as we drove to the orphanage. I could still see those glaring eyes. Then I thought, wait, I'm going to meet this precious daughter of mine. I prayed, God, help us love her. We waited a short time at the orphanage, and then Bowman entered the room. She quietly walked over to me and put her tiny hands into mine. I felt as if the Lord were holding my hands. I prayed, I will lead this hand to heaven, and we went home. Sang Sook Park is now 58. She runs an adoption agency called Morning Calm Family, which has placed 238 children in 160 Adventist families in South Korea over the past decade. She has adopted four children. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.